Now, if you would, direct your attention uh, to the, the reading of the, the Word of the Lord. It is printed in your bullets, and the passage that we'll be looking at this morning comes from Romans chapter 4, and then we will read together this passage from Romans chapter 5. Just as a reminder, this congregational reading every week uh, is a passage that we are reading together so that we can memorize it together. And in your bulletins, we've given you this bookmark. We hope that you'll take this and you'll put it into your Bibles, you'll place it on your refrigerators, you'll put it somewhere prominent so that as we memorize Scripture together, you won't be just doing it on Sunday morning with your church family, but you'll be often looking at it together that we could memorize the Word of God together. So let me ask you if you're able to please stand. And I will read aloud from Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, and then We will read together Romans 5, 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord through the mouth of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now would you read with me from Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Please be seated. And once more, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you For this passage this morning, we thank you that this epistle to the Romans is uh, so detailed and so specific uh, that we are able to see some of the very intricacies of your word to us and of this process of salvation uh, which you are working out and have worked out through your son Jesus Christ. And so we ask Heavenly Father this morning that you would be at work through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation and reading of your word, that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would make us a people able and willing to glorify your name, that you would make us a people who rejoice in the salvation that is ours in, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We ask that you would do that for your glory and for our good. We ask all of this in your name Amen. I have to say, um, many years ago, before I was a pastor, 
Uh, I was volunteering at a vacation Bible school, a VBS, and I was not the teacher. I was kind of like the, the helper, the co-teacher. And, uh, and we were working with a, a, a group of children, a younger group of children. They might have been seven or eight years old. And it came to the point kind of late in the week where we were teaching them about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about Jesus, his death on the cross. And one of the children said, uh, they raised their hand and they said, but I don't understand, how is it that Jesus dying on the cross makes me good with God? And the teacher tried, uh, proceeded to try to explain how Jesus' death on the cross uh, uh, puts us in right standing with God. And so he begins with all these big words and explaining and the child kind of cut him off again. But it, I don't understand, how does the death of Jesus make me good with God? And the teacher sort of exasperated, as exasperated as the child was, the teacher said, you know what? It's just magic. <laughs> and I thought, no! <laughs> it's a bad way of explaining uh, what God does through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not just magic, as if kind of like a Harry Potter movie. You wave the magic wand, and the death of Jesus magically makes you right with God. That's not it at all. And let me say, I think as Christians... We're often lazy in our explanation of, how, of God's work in us and among us to the point where we often will summarize God's work by saying it's just kind of magical. Maybe it's just sort of mysterious. But when in reality, through uh, books like this epistle to the Romans, God reveals to us the inner, working, the inner workings of the work that has been accomplished through Christ Jesus on the cross. And so we have a very good explanation this morning coming in Romans chapter 4 of exactly how the cross of Christ accomplishes our right standing with God. And it will be explained very clearly by the Apostle Paul in the passage this morning. Now listen, as we set out to look at this text this morning, I want to remind you of the picture that I drew for you all the way back on November 19th. On November 19th, we were looking at Romans 3, verses 19 through 20, and I drew a picture. It's actually more like an organizational chart, okay? I drew it for you, and I said, this picture is going to come up again and again as we try to understand what's happening in this epistle to the Romans. I'm not going to rehash the whole picture, but I will tell you, here's what I said to you back November 19th. There's a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. And on the vertical axis is all the things that happen outside the course of time. The glory of God in eternity past, the glory of God in eternity future. Paul will speak about, later in Romans 6, 7, 8, and 9, he will speak about things that happen outside of time. The foreknowledge of God and the predestining of sons and daughters to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, okay? He also talks about, in the epistle to the Romans, things that happen in the course of time. From the creation and the fall, all the way through our justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. All of this being worked out that we might have communion with God and with one another, ultimately for the glory of God. Now what I said to you November 19th was, don't worry about the whole picture. If you're looking at this and your eyes are crossing over, you're like, what is going on? November 19th, I told you all along the way we're going to stop and we're going to explain small details about this picture. So Romans 3, we talked about justification. 
What does it mean that we're justified? And on that date, November 19th, I said at the middle of this, there was a big question mark, but at the middle of this, bringing together the, the things that happen outside of time and the things that happen within time is the cross of Christ, right? The cross of Christ brings everything together, the foreknowledge and predestination of God, our justification, how do we reconcile or reckon the fall, all of it is brought together by the cross of Christ and our union with Him. If you're sitting here saying, what in the world is going on, go back November 19th, watch the YouTube video, and you will see how we began to work through this picture. Now, here's what's going to happen this morning. We're going to zoom in all the way into the middle of this, okay? So if you had a, if you had a, a magnifying glass or a microscope, and you could come up to the board here and say, okay, we're going to go, we're going to hone into the very middle of this process. We're going to the center where the cross stands, and we're asking the question, how does the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, how does that do anything for me? Okay, what's the process whereby one man's death on the cross makes it so that I can be right with God? Okay, we're talking about union with Christ, and so here's what I'm going to do. Instead of trying to force a bunch of notes onto a board, here's my zoom in, okay? We, uh, we, we just zoomed into the middle, and there's the cross, and everything that's on these axes is way out there. So justification, sanctification, we've zoomed into the middle, and we're going to talk about how the cross of Christ makes it so that we can be right with God, okay? Three things we see in Romans 4, verses 4 through 8. They're listed on your bulletin, in your handout, okay? And so here's what we're going to do. First point, very simple. The first point is this. We are told that by works, according to our best works, we are hopeless, okay? And if that sounds familiar to you, it is because that has been what Paul's been saying. Romans 1, 2, 3, saying it again and again. He will continue to beat that drum. He will continue to remind us of that message because all along the way, we must continue to be tethered to that idea, connected to it, that our best works are pointless, that there is nothing that we can do. And no matter how good we are, no matter what we do in our lives, that it is hopeless according to our standing with the living God. So Paul says this in verse 4. He says, the one who lives by works, or he says, exactly, now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, okay? So uh, we're talking about works. I'm going to write works on this side of the cross, okay? Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. This is the two actual words that are being used in verse 4. The one is charis. You know the Greek word. It's the word for grace, The other Greek word is the word that means to have a debt. So it literally says to the one who works, his wages are not counted as grace. His wages are not counted gracefully. They are counted as a debt. They are counted as what is owed to the man. Okay? So in verse 4, Paul's describing a working relationship. Now, if you're like, what does that mean? What's a working relationship? It shouldn't be too foreign to you because if you have any job, you understand a working relationship, okay? It goes something like this. I'm going to agree when I get hired that I'll work X number of hours or I'll do X number of things, and in exchange for the X number of things that I do, you're going to pay me X number of dollars, okay? So that I know at the end of the week, if I work my hours, I'm going to get paid X number of dollars, all right? It makes complete sense to you, doesn't it? Now think about this. We like a working relationship 
when it comes to our jobs. Because here's the flip side. Imagine a sort of grace-oriented relationship. It would go something like this. You work X number of hours, and at the end of your work week, your boss says, hmm, I wonder how much I'm going to pay you. How gracious am I feeling this week? I don't know, okay? And so you would get to the end of every week, and you kind of have like this guessing game. How much am I going to get paid this week? I don't know. And we wouldn't like that because most of us would say, I don't think that my boss is going to be really gracious to me when it comes to figuring out by grace, by his grace, how much he should pay me, okay? So we understand the working relationship that Paul is describing in Romans 4, verse 4. He said, for the man who works, his wages are counted not by grace, but by debt, but by by what is owed to him. So here's the big question. We recognize that Paul's not speaking about our jobs, right? He's not talking about when you go to Liberty and when you go to a Centra or when you go to your restaurant. He's not talking about that. He speaks of the relationship that we have with God. So the question is, by your good works in this life, what does God owe you? All right, just think about it. Say it in your mind. Think it. Even if you need to say it out loud, it's a good question. According to your good works, what does God owe you? All right? And we don't have to kind of guess at the answer because Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul has been telling us very clearly what the answer is. He has told us that in the course of time, something happened that we call the fall. Okay? And that is where sin is introduced. And he has told us from the beginning Sin has a debilitating effect on us so that according to the law, which reveals the righteousness of God, man, even in his best works, only receives condemnation, okay? Here's condemnation down here. He has told us, Romans 1, 2, and 3, no matter how hard we work, no matter what good we do, no matter how good we think it actually should be to God, That because of the fall into sin under the law which reveals the righteousness of God, that our works only deserve condemnation. And we shouldn't be surprised at that, right? We we realize as we read Romans 1, 2, and 3, we realize that we don't have a God who grades on a curve, okay? Like when you, you are in school and the teacher says you get above a 64, you're passing. That God is not a God of compromise. We have... We have read about him in Romans 1, 2, and 3, and we have seen that God tells us, I have made you to be in such a way, you to reflect my image, to be in perfect obedience to me, and then because of the fall into sin, this is now not possible. So that man by his very best works is only owed by the living God just condemnation, and this according to the glory of God, all right? So... This is, I'm not going to harp on it because this is what we've talked about in the first three chapters, okay? If you don't remember that, if you're like, that's news to me, go back and listen. Everything that we've talked about in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, okay? And what then you realize is this. You realize, and we've been talking about this, you realize that none of us should ever desire to stand before God according to our works, right? That if you think, man, I've been pretty good, and I have done pretty good in my life, and I've never really broken any laws, and people love me, and I take in my neighbor's trash can, and I've served at the homeless pantry, I've done a lot of good things in my life. If you ever think, if you ever have the desire in your heart to stand before God and say, God, look at what I've done, that you should really go back and read exactly what you're asking for, 
okay? Because that is a dangerous proposition. It is not for your good. If you stand before God and say, God, give me what you owe me, you don't realize, but you are asking for condemnation. You are asking for the just judgment of God, okay? And that not good for us. Make sense? This is what Paul means in Romans 4.4 when he says, for the one who works, his wages are not counted by grace, but by debt. Now, important in this conversation is another person, right? Another person, and that would be Jesus Christ. So a man is represented by Adam, the first Adam. Uh, Paul will later tell us in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, he tells us the same thing, that Jesus comes, and Jesus is the second Adam. Now, listen, this is significant. If you're going to understand what Paul's about to say in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, you have to understand what Jesus does under the law to accomplish our salvation. The Word of God says that Jesus comes under the law, doesn't come to do away with it, and people are always like, you're a really gracious man. Are you doing away with the law? And Jesus is telling them, no, no, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. He comes under the law. He comes in conformity to it, in perfect obedience to it. He lives a life, and what we say is all the way and up until and including the cross, that Jesus is, is both actively and passively obedient. His active and passive obedience is what we often talk about, which means that he lives according to the law perfectly. And when God says, uh, you, it is, it is the plan for you, Jesus, to go to the cross and to suffer for my people, that he says, okay, I will do that as well. That's the passive obedience of Christ. So in perfect, uh, active, and passive obedience, Christ lives under the law. All of his works are perfect, and because of that, he doesn't deserve condemnation. He deserves salvation or reward, right, or goodness, uh, justification, uh, sanctification, uh, uh, all of the good things that we talk about, all of that is what Christ deserves because of his perfect obedience under the law. When we talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, in the garden there was a, an agreement of works, a covenant of works, where God said to Adam, if you obey me perfectly, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. That covenant is not done away with. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So then the covenant of grace, where God says, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves, that is consummated by Christ's death on the cross, okay? That's where we're going, so hold that idea in your heads, okay? Don't lose sight of the work of Christ Jesus in this. Now, where do we find hope in the passage? It's found in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, Paul is now moving to talk about the other side. And we, we mentioned this word last week, but we're going to talk about it again and again. There's faith. It is being compared to works. And it appeared twice in verse 5. You remember I said it's the Greek word pistuo, translated trust, believe, faith, all of those words, the same Greek word. Okay, so to the one who believes, to the one who has faith, that God justifies the ungodly, it is counted to him as righteousness, okay? We begin to see Paul working out what, how it is that we are saved through the vehicle of faith. Ultimately, here's where we're going, okay? We, when we read verse 5, what is being described in verse 5, as Paul says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
He's describing what believers for all time have believed. When in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham, justified by faith, right? David, justified by faith. When he speaks about all those believers who were justified by faith, he's referring to them. She just wants to be down front. It makes sense. She can't see the whiteboard. He's, ref- he, he's speaking about believers who have believed in a God who justifies, remember justifications out here, who justifies the ungodly, those who have fallen into sin. When we looked at Abraham, we looked at Moses, and we looked at David, and we looked at believers of the Old Testament, they were essentially standing in the dark saying, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I believe in a God who will justify the ungodly, right? That was their faith in the Lord God. And so here Paul says that they believe the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly His faith is counted as righteousness. How is it possible? Well, there's an important Greek word. I'm going to write it here with a marker that works. It is the Greek word logizomai, okay? And I mentioned it last week, but we really have to camp out on it here this morning. Logizomai, okay? Uh, It is important, and I'll tell you how you can tell it's important. It is repeated 11 times in chapter 4, okay, 11 times. It is translated as the English word counted. So every time you're reading and it's like God counted and God counted is the Greek word logizomai, okay? And here's what it means. I think we really should stop and really define what the word means. So it is a word that means to count, to reckon, to credit as if it was actually yours, okay? And if you want to get a good grasp for what the word means, it doesn't have necessarily a positive or negative connotation, Here's what you have to imagine. Imagine two scenarios. Both of these are logizomai. Imagine you walk into a bank, okay, and you say, I've got 20 bucks. I want to deposit it into my account. You give them the $20. They give you your receipt. You're walking away. You get into your car, and you look at your receipt, and you're like, whoa, they deposited a million bucks into my account, okay? That's logizomai. They credited to you something that was not yours, right? And you're kind of driving away being like, I'm not going to say anything. See if this actually works out. A million bucks. That's great. Okay? Uh, No, you would go back and you would tell them they made a mistake. I know that. Same thing is true if you walk in with a million dollars and you say, I want to deposit this million dollars to my account. Uh, You walk out, you hop into your car, you look at the receipt, and whoa, they only credited you 20 bucks. Okay? That'd be really bad. And you would run back in, you've made a mistake. Okay? Banks don't typically make mistakes like this. That both of those words would capture the nature of the word logizomai. It is a it is a, almost a banking word. It's a, a crediting word. It is you have one thing and, and you are credited another thing, okay? Now, listen, of all the important mentions of this word, verse 5 maybe is the most important. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. The end of that verse, here's actually what it says in the Greek. His faith, his pistuo, is logizomai eis dekaios. Which is to say, it actually literally says, his faith is counted into righteousness. Okay? That captures the nature of the work that God is doing through his son Jesus Christ. Essentially, the description that he gives is not according to the law, but by the grace of God, by the grace of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, 
by our faith, God credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. It ultimately results in our salvation. Paul will go on to say all the good things we're going to talk about, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. He will go on to say that all of these good things are the result of the grace of God by the cross of Jesus Christ. Through our faith, we receive those things, okay? And I mentioned to you earlier, well, let me tell you what this is called. First of all, if you've ever heard the word impute, this is where it comes in, okay, this is imputation, that's an English word that we use, M meaning in, and pute is like to calculate. So to be calculated into us, okay, to be calculated in. So the righteousness of Christ is calculated into us by the grace of God through the cross, received by faith, and then it literally becomes ours. It is considered as if it is ours, but not because of anything in us, because of the work of Christ. Here's the real kicker. And the beauty of what God is doing, okay? When we talk about imputation, we often talk about double imputation. I hope you've heard that phrase before, double imputation, because God doesn't wave the magic wand and say, all right, righteousness of Christ is yours, boom. Nobody's going to pay for the sin, okay? Nobody's going to pay your debt. What he says is, by his grace, through the cross of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. And our sin, our disobedience, our works, all of it is imputed to Jesus Christ. And therefore, he receives our just condemnation. Okay? And you see then how at the center of this whole process, there's an exchange going on, isn't there? Okay? That is, by the vehicle of faith, uh, in the vehicle of faith, by the grace of God, through the work of Christ Jesus on the cross, the exchange that happens through faith is that the righteousness that is Christ, that he deserves because of his perfect obedience, is imputed to you. It is counted to you. You put 20 bucks in, you got a million, okay? And God goes to his son, Jesus Christ, and, and Jesus says, here's my righteousness. I've lived perfectly before you, God. And the Father says, all right, I take your righteousness and I credit to you unrighteousness. I credit to you condemnation. I credit to you my wrath. I credit to you judgment. This is what you get. And this by the grace of God so that many sons and daughters of the Father might be reconciled to him through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Amen, right? Now, now listen. Here's, here's where we err. Here's where we make mistakes, Okay? Whenever anyone begins to mix together works and faith, they mess this whole picture up, okay? You might as well crumble it up and throw it out. When you mix together works and faith, you, you mess up this whole picture. You, you, you corrupt the work of Christ. You, you make it to be confusing in, in, a, in an unnecessary way, okay? Think of all the ways that throughout church history and even today, people have mixed together works and faith. There are some who have said we are justified by a combination of our works and faith. That would be the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. You go back to the, if you don't believe me, go back to the, the Second Council of Trent. You will read it word for word. Okay? Faith and works together work out our salvation. That's problematic. Let me tell you, if you're going to take any combination of works and faith, what you end up with eventually is just works. You can't not. Because if 
by some form of obedience or works of the law, something over here is being accomplished, then it will only become that. It will only become because we will always be fearfully wondering, have we done enough work? Have we worked enough to be justified or adopted or sanctified or glorified? Okay? There are other ways this is abused, right? Some people would say that the salvation that we receive and our justification begins with faith, but ultimately it is accomplished by our works. So we come in faith, but then we begin to contribute our works. Ultimately, that's how we are finally saved. Okay? All of that is problematic. It is not according to the word of God. Rather, the Lord has told us by his grace, through the cross of Jesus Christ, through faith we receive the righteousness of, of Christ and that ultimately results in our salvation. Do you see how any manipulation of that results only in false teaching? As a matter of fact, this is the very thing that Paul will say in verse 6. Listen to what he says about David. He's speaking about David, and then he quotes from Psalm 32, and listen to what he says in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Do you know what? That little word right there, apart from, okay, I would much rather they translate it literally. It's the word that means without, okay, without, having no presence of being absent of, okay? The, literally, the sentence would say, if it was a wooden translation, it would say, to the one whom God counts righteousness without any works, apart from any works, absent of any works, that there are no works that go into this equation. You see, Paul is referencing King David, and he says, look, even all the way back there with David. Last week, we saw Abraham, even all the way back there with them. You know what it was? It was always by grace through faith. Never through works of the law was any man saved, declared righteous, justified, sanctified, glorified. Never has it ever been possible that your works would, would bring about any of this, but only by faith and the grace of God. So then we must be mindful that any time we mix these things together, we actually begin to destroy the work of Christ, to undermine the cross, to strip it of his potency. You rob God of his glory. You frivolously complicate the good news. You dishonor and diminish the work of the Son. It is by design, God would tell us, it is by design that it is not by works of the law lest any man should boast. You see, the picture that God gives us is it is all accomplished by Christ on the cross so that the only thing that we can say is thank you, God. And we can never stand before God and say, but I did, but I said, but I brought, but I'm responsible for. You're responsible for nothing. You might say, well, I'm responsible for faith, aren't I? And Paul would say, but faith is a gift of God. You get no credit. Exactly the way God designed it. This past week, someone shared this quote with, with me. I thought, I want to read it to you. This is a Spurgeon quote. We're going to put it on the Facebook page tomorrow in case you'd like to go back and look at it in more detail. Here's what Spurgeon said. He was preaching through Romans 5. Here's what he said about this confusion. He said, there is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Some men put the law instead of the gospel. Others put the gospel instead of the law. 
Some modify the law and the gospel, and they preach neither law nor gospel. Others entirely abrogate the law by bringing in the gospel. Many there are who think that the law is the gospel and who teach that men by good works of benevolence and honesty and righteousness and sobriety that they may be saved. Such men do err. On the other hand, many teach that the gospel is a law, that it has certain commands in it by obedience to which men are meritoriously saved. Such men err from the truth and they understand it not. A certain class maintain that the law and the gospel are mixed together and that partly by observance to the law and partly by God's grace, men are saved. These men understand not the truth and they are false teachers. So, right from the mouth of Spurgeon, a really good explanation of what happens when we mix these two things together. Here's the last thing I want you to see. It will only take a minute, okay? In, in all of this, in this being worked out, Paul is going to tell us in verses 7 and 8 what the actual result is for us. Listen to this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, when I was reading this uh, last week and doing what I often do, I, I was reading it in the Greek and then translating it so I could kind of comprehend what Paul's saying. I got to verse 8 and I read it a few times and then translated it and every time I read it and then went back to it I thought man that's so beautiful I couldn't I just sat and thought about it for like a half an hour I don't know if that's a good use of time or not but uh, I sat and thought about it for like a half an hour and when I was reading it there's something that happens in the Greek text you will not see in the English I just want to point it out again this is my final point the actual Greek said blessed is the man uh, against uh, blessed is the man whom the Lord and then the Greek says ooh may logitomai Hamartia, okay? So you know logizomai, that's the word to credit. Hamartia is the word for sin in Greek. So blessed is the man whom the Lord, u may, credit sin, okay? Now, I, let me tell you about those two words, just u may, really quick. E- either of those words, you stick them in the sentence, it would make perfect sense. U is the word that means no. So if you just had that word, say blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no sin. Great. Terrific. Makes sense. May is the word that means not. Okay? You just put that word in there, it would read like this. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count as sin. Terrific. We got two great meanings of a sentence with either of these words, but they're both combined here. It's what happens in the Greek when they say a double negative. Okay? And in English, it's like there ain't none. Right? We, that's a double negative. And typically we say, what, is it, what does that mean? Does that mean there is some or there isn't some? Like, ain't none. But in Greek, it's always for emphasis. It's an emphatic emphasis. Okay? So literally, you take ooh, you take may, the two words that are put in there, if you were to literally translate what the Apostle Paul is saying, here's what he's saying in verse 8. This is significant. Listen. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not know, will not count his sin. Do you you feel the impact of that? Yeah. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not know. He will not count his sin. Okay? The beautiful reality of this is what it means for us is that through faith, We are saved by God. That is by the grace of God through the work of Jesus on the cross that when we are saved by faith, the Lord God looks at us and he never, ever, ever credits to our account any sin. Not in the past, not in the present, not in the future. Not not the worst kind of sin, not the easiest kind of sin. Not the ones that are obvious, not the ones that are hidden. 
not the, the ones that we think are more offensive than other. No, not ever will the Lord count our sin against us. When we get ready to take the Lord's Supper in a second, what we're doing is we're, we're eating bread and we're drinking wine and we're saying this is a picture, it's a sign and a seal of the body and, uh, of Christ and the blood of Christ that was poured out and the sign and seal that it is to us is this. The body of Christ was imputed with my unrighteousness. The judgment of God was poured out. His righteousness was imputed. It was credited to me. And now I come to take the Lord's Supper knowing that never, never, not one ever of my sins will be counted against me. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is what we're beginning to see spelled out in the epistle to the Romans. And it is for this that we thank and praise and glorify our Father. For he has worked this out in his son, Jesus Christ, that we might be called sons and daughters. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to us, not primarily to teach us, not primarily to be a good man, not primarily even to be a prophet. You have sent your son for all those reasons, but primarily you have sent him to be a sacrifice. And you have sent him that he would perfectly live according to works of the law. And he would, in perfect obedience to your plan, that he would live and he would die and he would give himself an offering, a sacrificial lamb. And he would stand before you with his righteousness and you would say to your only son, I take your righteousness and I give you condemnation. And I give you wrath and I give you a curse and I give you unrighteousness. I give that to you by grace. So that many sons and daughters might be reckoned, reconciled, credited, and counted as righteous. And so through our union with Christ, by faith, we are declared as if we lived the perfect life that Jesus lived, given to our account. So Lord God, would you this morning as we continue to worship you, would you make that truth real in our hearts that we would glorify you and worship you out of thanksgiving, knowing that you will never, no, not ever, count our sin against us. We thank you and praise you this morning. In your name we ask all of this. Amen.